listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. You have a little bit of life in you today. I don't know how you're actually feeling, but your face has life behind it. I can see something in your eyes today, which I did not see for the last two weeks. So I put I put on my podcast makeup, uh, some lipstick for you. That's why I look so good. Man, I'll tell you what, working with athletes over these last three years, I guess are we on almost three years with two years with COVID, two full years? That how long it's been? I think January twentieth. Right around there is our three-year anniversary. Okay, so almost three years. But I have some people who get it, and in four days, they're back to popping a workout. And then I have some who, like, it drags on for, like, a month or, like, more. Like, I just haven't been able to get back. I think I'm going to be somewhere on the tail end of the, uh, those two things because I'm, uh, I'm limping home. I did get some good drugs today. I, got, I went to the doctor, and they prescribed me some steroids because I got some rattling in my lungs. So probably got some sort of bronchitis mm-hmm. and a little antibiotic action. So if I'm looking good now, Bracken, you just wait another five or ten days. You're going to be blown be away. <laughs> it's going to be unreal. But I'm hanging in there. I'll tell you what, the hard, running hard is not an option. Like putting out hard efforts and feel like just you instantly go from feeling fine at like a recovery effort or like tolerable to like instant just miserable um, where you can be like, this is actually harming me. Like you can tell it's not good for you. Um, did you experience that? Yeah. And I think we talked about it on here and I know Jack Bauer talked about it when we were on race brain, but mm. it's like, you're missing fourth gear in most of third, you go right from easy to red line. That's so like true. You're working aerobically life's okay. You tip over slightly and you're maxed out and it feels bad. It's bizarre. I was doing, um, a salt bike strength workout just before this. Uh, 100 pull-ups. I was giving myself a minute rest and quotes on the assault bike, pull-ups to failure, back on the assault bike for a minute, back and forth. And I did all 10 rounds of 10 reps, which I was really happy with, actually. Um, but in that effort, my heart rate was spiking at 160 coming off of pull-ups. Like Normally, it would just stay in the 130s, maybe pop. It's just bizarre. Exactly what you said. It went from like 125 to bam, just like in a dime. It's bizarre. So par for the course, I guess, huh? Yeah. No gray zone. No gray zone. Right from aerobic to red. Wild. And you didn't you race high rocks like oh, two weeks after having COVID, uh, the North American doubles champs? Day 11. Day, I couldn't imagine. How did you do that in hindsight? That's unreal. I mean, we laughed and people joked about me laying flat on my back on the cool concrete while I was taking rests during some stations. Mm-hmm. Like on the on the row, I got off and just laid flat on my back. And close my eyes and just breathe and let the concrete kind of cool me down. Um, but I mean, that was that was my only option. I was just miserable, and I think I said it on here. But and you and Rich laughed, I think, because you said, "When'd you blow up?" I said, "Uh, kind of out of station one, I started blowing <laughs> up." <laughs> Come on, that didn't. But that's how it mm. felt because as soon as I tipped, I tipped, and I was and I said this then, but. On Kelly's shoulder, the last three runs, so 1,000 meters, six, seven, and eight, 
Mm-hmm. I was on her shoulder using every race strategy I have to not let go of her. I believe it. Just hanging on. Day 11 would be an impossibility. Yeah. I mean, she had booked flights to come in and do it and hotel and hotel downtown Chicago during an event weekend is expensive. Right. And there was just too much on the line. Uh, and I know she was so fit and strong that she could carry me. But one month earlier, we had done a sim and I was pacing her on the runs and chatting to her and going over the strategy of our next station. And one month later, I was hanging on to her shoulder for dear life, trying to get air into I my lungs. It. It, was, it, was, it was one of the worst feeling races I've ever done. Yeah, I can imagine. I don't know if I respect that hustle out of you or if I think you're an idiot. I can't decide. It's probably in the middle there, but there's not a chance. I'm telling you right now, like it would have been, that wouldn't have happened for me on day 11. So the props to you. Well, then we all, we all get affected by that differently, you know? So you were sick. I remember how sick you were. Yeah, it was sick, but in terms of what it does to your chest and what it does to everything else, it's, it's almost like you just can't compare your experience to anyone else's. But I was, there are, some races you get done with and you're, and you're embarrassed at how bad you hurt during it. And that was one I got done and I was pretty much just proud <laughs> that I got through it because even 24 hours earlier, I was downstairs on the treadmill telling Lisa, like, I'm getting lightheaded in between 30, 30 reps at aerobic threshold. I just don't know. This is my test run before the race it was 30, 30 at aerobic threshold and I was getting lightheaded. And I was just thinking, is this even smart? What if I pass out on course? That's foolish. Mm. Well, the real travesty over here is that um, Trials of Miles Racing, which puts on uh, these like 5K high level races around the country for like adults. And you'll get people that are sub 14 minute 5Kers show up and it's highly competitive field. And normal people can run them to normal in quotes. Like they'll seed you 25 to 30 minutes in the 5K, 20 to 25. And then the fastest heats are normally about 15, 30 and under. But anyways, they put on this... Uh, this event all January called King of Thrones, I believe it is. And so it's bracket style. And every week they give you a Strava route and it's head to head competition, like a March Madness tournament bracket. And whoever runs the faster time between you and whoever you're put against advances to the next round and the next round. And then ultimately King of Minneapolis is crowned. And, um, one of my one an alumni of Oshkosh who I don't know but I creeped on him was my competition. He just ran two twenty eight in the marathon this year, and that was my round one selection this past week. And I had to big fat DNS the first round of this King of Thrones because I wasn't ready to race, and that I was really excited about. That's a travesty. Not terrible. What was the route? It was just a two. The first route was a two point five mile route around Lake Nokomis here in Minneapolis, and he ended up. I guess this guy he ran five twenty two pace for it, and I was like, "Dang, I probably could have pulled that off, but better not." And I looked, and the guy he's facing just ran forty nine ten in his last ten mile road race. I was like, "Well, I'm not. I doubt I'm going to beat that dude, so I might as well just wave the white flag now." <laughs> so that was that. That's a travesty right there. Wow. Well, that's frustrating. That's a cool race series. They do a good job. It's cool. I like the... They put on some indoor track meets. If you don't follow Trials of Miles Racing, go look. It's like anybody you can show up. You want to run a fast mile, they'll seed you appropriately. You won't be outclassed, and you'll be with your peers. Um, And most of the major cities they end up traveling to throughout the year. I'm sure they even make a trip to Milwaukee or at least the Chicago area. I'll have to check that out. You you can put on your uh, your Zoom milers and go let it rip. Well, that's what I was going to say. I'm to the point where... 
I don't know if I would spike up for a track race. What would you? I don't know if it would help me as much as it would hurt <laughs> the me. The vapors, vapor flies might do you better. Yeah, or even just regular racing flats might be better for mm. me at this point. I don't think I'm popping off the ground with that type of turnover and efficiency. I, I think that I'd feel really good for two laps, say, in a mile, and I'd start to have my calves and Achilles ache before the race was even done. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think I'll buy another pair of spikes. 800, I'd probably still spike up. Mile? Mile? I might not. Mm. That's because you're getting old. Those old bones need some cushioning, Bracken. Yes, they do. Um, do you want to jump right into uh, into today's little conversation? Yeah, yeah. Kick her off. Caster Troy sent us down this rabbit hole, didn't he? He did. Troy Caster, who's recovering from Achilles. Do you know the reference? Caster Troy. Caster Troy. What is it? Uh, the movie Face Off. Uh-huh. Nick Cage and John sure. Travolta. They they switch faces <laughs> to go undercover. Uh-huh. One's a criminal, one's an FBI agent. The main guy's name is Caster Troy, and we know a guy named Troy Caster. And I just love the fact that that's that's there. He he asked us not to uh, read it verbatim, and I read this question on one of the recent Q and As, and it kind of jogged my memory a little. And I thought it'd be fun to talk about today. Um, <laughs> careful there, Bracken. What happened? A little fight milk spillage. <laughs> oh. I just spilled all over myself. Well, that's just rookie. <laughs> yeah, take that shirt off. Um, we are recording video now. Maybe the people will see. I'm going to have to pop this top off. <coughs> and I appreciate him just genuinely asking about us, right? He's not really looking to gain any knowledge from this other than just curious to get to know us as humans. And it says, um, <clears throat> interested to hear what you guys have learned from coaching OCR. What works? What doesn't? How does coaching such a range of disciplines, sprint versus ultras, etc., work? Is it hard? What are some of the biggest wins with coaching, etc.? Kind of a recap of how it all is going for you guys behind the scenes with your professional growth game in the sport, etc. I was just curious. Um, and then that got me thinking, well, we can touch on a number. We can touch on some of those things like the challenges of coaching such a wide array of athletes, but really walking you guys, the listeners, through our coaching progressions as like, I guess we could call ourselves professionals at this point. Um just understanding where we came from, where we've been, how we got to where we are today, and maybe a few nuances along the way. So that's what we're diving into today, Bracken. I really like it. We're right now building out the the next round of running public training plans. And it's very interesting to me to watch these plans morph out over 50-some weeks and see all the pieces of workouts that have made their way mm-hmm. into the final piece, into this final puzzle that we're I say final puzzle, meaning final for 2023, but it looks very different than 2022 or at least decently different and very different from 2020 and very different from first OCR plan I ever wrote was 2011. Yeah. So it's been, it's been a long time. Like my running knowledge and beliefs have really evolved since the very first time I wrote any sort of running plan or gave a workout. It's it's but it's been cool to watch that process on screen seeing I did this workout in 2011 or this is a brand new workout or this is half of a workout from 2004 combined with an OCR component. It's it's been kind of a nice stroll down memory lane. If you had to just slap the one glaringly obvious change in your philosophy, the biggest one that you've really taken a harder look at and pivoted as your on your opinion with. 
from let's say back in 2011 to now like one thing that you're like man like i used to look at things this way and now i look at them much differently is there anything that jumps out at you for me there's one thing that that uh, i stands out but i'm curious there <sighs> i i don't know if i can it would either be that i greatly misunderstood the amount of work people can handle hmm. when properly planned out i think early on i would look at numbers of people were running and say that's ridiculous or that's right and I just didn't have a – it was almost like if I hadn't felt it, I couldn't imagine it to be true for someone else. Right. Uh, so so that understanding that some people just are going to need blank and it doesn't matter if it makes sense to me or not. Or, but the other one would, would probably be an over-reliance on overly fast running and an under-reliance on staying power and volume and recovery and just really planning out a season. That would probably be the most important. But the first one, I don't think I can discredit either because I used to be able to not really train people if they didn't have the same skill set and goals that I did. Uh, that was a struggle early on for me. Well, mine is the exact same as the second one that you mentioned, which was in college, you come from over speed training. You're always working at like race pace or faster for almost all of the quality work that you do mm -hmm. so that when race day comes, it feels prospectively easier in a sense, and you're working so you can run comfortably fast when it's time to race. And, um, and I think every time I decided on a quality workout for somebody, it was, well, let's have them run race pace or faster because that's going to make racing feel easier, which of course you could stand behind that thought process. But now all I care about is working like energy systems and working slower than race pace is way more helpful because you're working metabolic systems instead of like just pure pacing and working metabolic systems i've found just moves the needle so much further than like just over speed training constantly constantly and so biggest thing is like it, it plans would look way different now than they would have a decade ago on that exact thing right there i think one thing i did from the very beginning well was i understood the concept of teaching to the test mm-hmm even if I didn't implement it well, I said implement weird. Even if I didn't implement it well, I understood the concept. And so right from the first plan I ever wrote, I was looking at what are you going to need to be able to do on race day? But how I did it was often flawed. Like you, I, I relied on, all right, what pace, we're going to work at 5K pace today so that we are working significantly faster than race mm -hmm. pace. And we're going to work at 3K pace. And early on, I had people running 5K pace, 3K pace, mile pace, alternating weeks with my staying power work being 10K pace. That was a slow end of my quality day was 10K pace. Right. For the average person, is there much of a difference between 5K pace and 3K pace? <laughs> Barely. Or 3K and mile? Do even if there is, and you could, you could calculate some sort of systemic change that you could cause by doing that. Do they even have an accurate reading on what that pace was? So I was over relying on, on, on metrics that didn't matter. Even though I was trying to do it correctly for teaching to the test, uh, I I was still working off track. Mm -hmm. It's hard not to. I overcomplicated things. Yeah. Yeah, simple things like um, 
Like I used to get in my head, like you need your long run needs to be minimum of three times your race distance up to a certain point. So like if you're a 5k athlete, yeah. well, nine miles, 10 miles at most, like you don't, you shouldn't do any more than that. You don't need to, it will take away. Now I'll send a 5k on a 20 mile long run. Like if it makes sense for them or go out for an hour, two and a half hours. And I think it benefits it greatly, but I used to just put a govern on how much like low grade time on feet as well. Just mm. like didn't, I didn't think that really served a purpose. I was wrong. I don't know if your philosophy changed on that, but you that, and I were racing for four minutes or less very often. So is it a little different? Well, I went through college and my first my first year of, of school when I was down at Campbell and I was running cross country and it was more of a distant. The coach was a 10K. He had run, I think he had medaled, I think third place at the Pan Am Games in the 10K or something like that. He, he had had success, but it was as a 10K runner sure. and a marathoner. And so he had a distance centered approach, but we would alternate our long runs, um, 11 miles and 16 miles every other week. Mm. But even looking back on that, an 11 mile run to a 70 mile a week cross country runner is not a lot of right. mileage. 16 is a long run. Don't get me wrong. But if I did that six times my freshman year at lacrosse and whitewater after that for three more years, I don't think I ran another run longer than nine. Hmm. Nine was a long run, but we ran it with pace. Right. You know, we, we put some, some oomph into it. So uh, yeah, I think what you said is accurate. And, and that kind of got me thinking that when you said that three times the race distance rule, my whole life, I, I've been very comforted by rules and templates and, and rules of thumb or calculations. And, uh, the more I got into OCR and to coaching other people, the more I wanted to take the rules and the templates and the calculations and the conversions that existed in the real world of running and make a hybrid version of it for off-road running or technical running or obstacle course racing or whatever it was. I thought I could, it, with a ton of arrogance, thought I could maybe revolutionize how people are able to calculate things. And I just kept trying to make a square peg fit into a round hole and eventually had to just accept the fact that there are very few times in sport that you can just make a broad generalization. Like your long run must be X compared to Y. Or your volume must only go up by blank per week. Or you cannot have a long run that is X percent of your, or greater than X percent of your total weekly volume. All these rules that we've been taught Every time I tried, I've tried writing a everything I know about endurance training book or pamphlet or whatever you want to call it several times. And I always failed when I tried to quantify things in a very precise definition and it just kept breaking. And finally I had to just accept, no, like none of that matters. It's about understanding your personal relationship to it at this point in time and making the best decision for it right now and reevaluate again in four to six weeks. That was a really long, painful process for me because it was so comforting to slap a, a label or a equation on everything. Yeah. Well, every time you probably go to write down like a guiding principle for somebody, then all of a sudden you're like, well, I can think mm -hmm. of three exceptions to that already. And so you start poking holes in your own philosophies because there's been exceptions to every philosophy that I believe in and I've guided people through that because it's just what they yeah. need so you're right it's tough that way i figured um we should uh we should start with um or follow this up i should say now with uh 
let's talk about when you wrote your first plan for somebody else. Like when when did you first coach somebody? And what did that look like? Like back in the beginning. And then when the first time is that you got paid, actually paid to coach somebody for the first time? I don't know these answers, so I'm actually personally curious. I'll answer them myself as well. Well, technically, I was coaching in college. I was driving back in several days per week while I was at Whitewater to be an assistant coach at West Dallas Central High School. Mm. So that was, I got paid and I didn't write the workouts. But since I was in college running, I could give some just tips on, yeah, I'm thinking this or this this week. What should we go with for the quality workout? And then I'd lead all the workouts. I'd, I'd run with the team. Um, so t- technically, I think I made like two grand that year mm-hmm. coaching, which was massive at Whitewater. Do you want to uh, you want to know what's just fantastic about this story? It's such a small world, Bracken, is that my first coaching job was at West Dallas Hale the rivals of West Dallas Central. In 2007, I was the high school girls distance coach. Um, 2007. So what year were you coaching? I would have been either 8, 9, or 9, 10. And I was either 7, 8, or 6, 7. I think I was 7, 8. I'll have to go back and look. Just missed. We didn't even know each other then, but I, I coached the girls team. Then I got offered the head coach position the following year. Um, and mm. I didn't have the capacity to go all in. In fact, then I had, I had stopped and gotten to physical rehab and then I had no flexibility with my schedule, but nonetheless, we, we coached literally high school level. What, what were they, how far apart were the schools? Like three miles, yeah, Tops, three two miles and a half maybe. apart. We would go to central to do indoor track workouts cause we didn't have access to that. So we, we would run workouts there. I'm surprised we never crossed paths. And we would run to hail to get outdoor track. <laughs> That's a small world, dude. It is. My mom let me take her 2002 black VW Beetle to Whitewater mm-hmm. for the whole season so that I could drive back and forth to practice. So I was at college with a VW Beetle at my disposal. That's impressive. So just picture that life, Kirk. I'm picturing that. Well, I got asked to prom by one of my athletes. They showed up with a cake that said, Kirk, will you go to prom with me? Written in icing on the top, in which I had to reject her, and then she hated me for it. So I had to deal with that. Really? It wasn't a joke? No, I don't think so. I'm pretty sure. I mean, it felt pretty serious. I had to have a conversation with her mother. Her mother called after all. Talk about being set up for failure. Yeah. I was like a 20... How old would I have been there? I was probably like 23, 24 coaching, you know, high school girls, probably just close enough in age at times. I don't know. But anyways. Yeah, I think I was 20 and then 21. Okay. I butted in. So continue with your progression. That that was my first taste. But then right after graduating, we went on our honeymoon. I started running again a little bit. We, we did this all on my episode, but I got into... I wasn't ever going to run again. I decided that after I didn't qualify for nationals on my fifth year of of track, I didn't qualify. I walked off the track. I didn't cool down ceremoniously, just mm-hmm. took my spikes off and I was done with running. Got kind of guilted, kind of pressured into running a Spartan race. Got destroyed by Hobie Call and really enjoyed running on trails and off trails. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really the obstacles that did it for me, but it was the 
the running through the woods with no trail, just following markers was really exciting to me. And then I got into trail running and pursued OCR from there and started writing my own programming because no one else was writing programming at that time for OCR. And then within probably a year, uh, that next year, I took third place at Worlds. And that was when people started asking me to Mm. help them with training. And at the beginning, I would just send them a plan. I would script out six to 12 weeks and just send it to them and say, let me know what you think. And then about a year after that, maybe a year and a half after that, uh, someone asked me to coach them. And I said, no, I don't have any interest in doing that. I was you were still teaching at the time though, right? Yeah. Teaching, coaching yeah. basketball, coaching track, uh, helping out with cross country and just didn't want to really. I thought that's weird. I want to coach in, I was still coaching in person every day. I didn't want right. to have some weird pen pal. Uh, and then probably 2013 or 14, somewhere in there, I, I wrote my first like six month plan for someone and and charged them for it. And it felt really weird. Mm-hmm. And looking back, uh, in fact, there's a guy I coached in that year. His name was Darren. And Darren is just almost always on my mind. Not always, but whenever I'm writing plans for someone new, I just can't help but flash back to Darren because I just <laughs> did not help Darren <laughs> that much. I was mm-hmm. not worth what he paid me, at least in my eyes. He didn't get what he paid for. I did not know what I was doing or how to do it. And I was at that point that we talked against on our bad coaching episode, which is you've got to put in your grind for years before you can charge someone for your services. And I had, but in an adjacent field. I wasn't ready to charge for my services. Hmm. So you so you started making a living-ish, or at least contributing to it, starting in 2013. I wouldn't even count that. No, I, st- uh, I would say 2015 is when I finally said, I'm confident enough to start coaching, coaching, and I will stand by my work and I'm going to charge you for it kind of mm. thing and, and made an announcement. I'm accepting athletes, that kind of thing. Probably 2015, I would say. So by that point, I had been coaching track or cross country on and off for seven years. Okay. And... And writing my own training for, for five. So seven years is a, a, co- a perfect, you could call yourself then if you're making some sort of income on it, you technically a professional, semi-professional since 2015. So seven years. Wow. Yeah. It was, it was a seven year learning curve and it didn't get me to the end. It got me to the start. Yeah, totally. But even then when I was writing and I'd been writing my own plan and by this point I knew what worked for me at that moment and I was comfortable being creative in my training plans. And I was comfortable getting out. By this point, I'd gotten away from having to do 3K work and 5K work and hitting exact track. And I, I spent my first several years of OCR doing all my speed work, most, at least half my speed work on the track. The other half I would do off-road. And uh, I'd gotten away from that and just really leaning into what I needed to do better. But as soon as I wrote a plan for someone else, I had to go back to this mindset of I'm being judged for it. So it must be perfect. And it has to abide by all the existing running rules that are out there. And so I had Jack Daniels, uh, training book and I had, um, I'm trying to think who else, Joe Friel's training book at the time and a couple people's. And I, I just pulled a lot from what they were doing, even if I wouldn't have used it for myself because I didn't trust my anecdotal work to be able to give it to others. So I kept giving 5k and 10k training stuff with OCR emphasis, to people because I couldn't stand on my own work yet. 
But that makes sense. That's where we all start. We all start by stealing other people's stuff. For sure. In some capacity, whether it's through a book or through an old coach. And then we eventually get curious enough to experiment or run into enough roadblocks to experiment or fail enough times to change the script or attempt to change the script. I mean, that's, I feel like that's not a cheap progression. That is the progression, isn't it? It is. And what I ran into because of this was endlessly people would PR their, their mile, PR their 5k in training and blow up in races. That was, that was like the Bracken Crocker coaching school. <laughs> and we're going to practice all American, blow up on race day. <laughs> race JV. I can promise you we can do those things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's because I wasn't teaching them to their test. I was applying principles that were tried and true for a different sport. And mm-hmm. I wasn't flexible enough or confident enough to really do it. And so that that took me another two years probably to really get that out of my system. I'd say it probably wasn't until 2016 that I was thinking more laterally with other people as well. And that was about the time that that leaderboard kicked up Mm -hmm. on that whole leaderboard process. It's funny. We we started with the apex project. That was way back in that. That was around 2015. I think, uh, what did apex stand for? Nothing. It was just apex apex predator pinnacle just the apex like the it wasn't an acronym for anything okay. no just mountainous and top i didn't know if it was all right yeah i get it probably pro- probably very symbolic of what i was doing just sounded <laughs> cool uh-huh. and right. my brother and i were working on training plans together and we were working with a guy named Derek Derek toshner out of oshkosh mm-hmm. uh, i think oshkosh area fond du lac actually he went to oshkosh yeah I remember seeing his name around. He was a track athlete. Oh, yeah. He was an All-American. He was a Mm -hmm. monster. He was a sub-50-second 400-meter hurdler. I think he was one of our guys. He might have been on the record boards. Maybe that's where I saw his name. He was lacrosse, actually, I think. Mm, I've seen his name. Anyways, continue. Either lacrosse or Oshkosh. But, I mean, he ran at Olympic trials. He was was an All-American. He was a monster 400-meter hurdler and just a freak of nature. He's like 6'4" jacked out of his mind and can just do anything he wants to. But we, we partnered to put on some OCR and running clinics. I never got it off the ground and we were writing better training plans by this point, but we didn't, we didn't know how to run a business or, or do that kind of thing. And then that, when that fell apart, we, I was training on my own and working with people and then partnered with leaderboard and leaderboard started in 2016 and we made it two and a half years and it started off as, as some great, uh, really great collection of young motivated people like most startups Mm. with a shared goal and wanting to change the industry for the better. And it got off the rails along the way, but it was the most important time of my coaching life because our, um, I guess you would call it CEO, the guy who became the CEO, the CEO of leaderboard was very much a logical technician of Mm -hmm. any sort of thinking and constantly challenged me on everything I said and every plan I wrote. And he didn't have any endurance background, but he was a critical thinker. And so I'd present something and he would just pick it apart and ask questions why. And I got really frustrated during this time because again, in OCR, I was probably top three in the US at that time, probably top five or six in the world. I was near the top of my sport and I was one of the only coaches doing it because very few people were coaching. Yancey was coaching. Uh, I think Rich Diaz was doing a little bit of coaching, but there were very mm-hmm. few people. I thought, like, I am the top of my industry. I know more than anyone else, and why are you questioning me? And the reality was I didn't know anymore, 
And while he didn't have any right to question me in my mind, everyone has a right to question everything in reality. Yeah. And so he forced me to think critically about what I was doing and why. And so many times, even if I wouldn't say it out loud to him, I'd finish the meeting and, and sit there and think like, I'm doing it this way because that's what my high school and college coach would have done. And it was a really, those first six months of leaderboard was like my, I don't know, on the job training or whatever you'd want to call it Mm -hmm. of putting me through the fire of having to reevaluate why I wanted to do every workout, why I thought about workouts in a certain way, what my actual theory of training was. And what came out was a pretty good jack of all trades training program spawned out of that. Probably for the first time ever for me, I... I was putting together good training plans rather than just serviceable training plans with leaderboard with leaderboard. Yeah. Through that program. And that's when, that's when we met, you came on there and I think you would agree that it wasn't the highest level training possible, but you could just get pretty fit off what we were doing. Oh yeah. It was very specific to OCR as well. Very saturated with skill work. Yeah. Which is what I needed yeah, at the time. A lot time. of that. Mm-hmm. Looking back, there's never been a period of time in my life compared to those six to nine months where I did more like slash and burn approach to all of my work I'd been doing where mm. I was happy to have archives of workouts and then it they, they didn't all survive the fire mm-hmm. and they, they didn't deserve to survive the fire. I Even though leaderboard imploded and we went under and we parted under bad terms and have not talked in years... I will uh, forever be grateful for his approach to forcing me to get very, very defensive about what I'm doing and why. And I think we all need that to truly find out other than just learning the hard way over the course of decades. We'll stay in on you then before I eventually start talking about me. What, what was the, what was the catalyst? So you, you don't need to get into specifics, but with leaderboard, which you were partnered with, I believe, there were two, three, four other people in the business, and you were the coach for you, if I believe. And I had interacted with all of them. I had a good experience. Um, mm-hmm. And then you dissolved and decided, I'm doing this for myself. Like, what was – was there a catalyst there, or was it like you were just – It was a – Too many It was a culmination of business. Yeah, to, business and life collided mm-hmm. where we started to – to lose our North star for where we were going and what our original intent was and started following more of the whims and the, the personal interests of the CEO rather than what do you guys think about this? It became, this is our new direction. This is, I've given this a lot of thought. This is where we're going. Got it. That didn't work well with the team, but at the same time we were getting to the point where we wanted to, uh, we're, done we had sold our home we had moved to colorado we had moved back home we were renting in a duplex we were ready to start saving up for a home kids we had uh three kids now it was getting too expensive and we were just we had stagnated as a company and we weren't we weren't making by the by year two and a half i was back to taking in the same size check as month one of year one we had just stopped growing and we were dead on the line so I had to make a move just financially. Plus, it made it real easy because the company was starting to become just a a mess. But I, I guess all that didn't even matter because I was ready to kind of spread my wings again and, and take what I had learned and will be eternally grateful for being forced to learn, but do it on my own terms and in a, a place where I could scale it and do what I want with it. 
That makes sense. But that that time, those two and a half years, I got rid of more workouts and created more workouts than any other section in my life. And then you've been independent until we partnered up ever since. Yeah. And you really coach independently. I coach independently. We collaborate on the running public training plan. Yeah. But during that time is, I guess, answering the actual question is when I found out the most of what doesn't work for OCR from the running world, what does work for OCR. And interestingly enough, brought me to the point now where I'm the most effective run coach I've ever been mm-hmm. because it enhanced my knowledge and my understanding of how the human body responds to endurance training. It took getting away from pure running to figure out how to pure run better. Isn't that wild? I feel the same way. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll break down the details of specifically what I got rid of and what I believe and all that, but I want to get you up to this point now. So mm. you coached at Hale and now you're here coaching under the running public umbrella, doing your personal one-on-one thing. Bridge that gap for me. Yeah, well, there's a lot in there, but I'll I'll just hit the highlights. Um, no, take your time. Well, yeah, so about the same time, we both were coaching high school, um, high school in 2007, but my trajectory is different than yours is I graduated and went into personal training. And so I was leading people through fitness from since 2005. Like in our internship, we had to... Um, we had to coach and train three professors for free and guide them through like a six month, for example. So it started like right there. And any professor at the university that wanted to take advantage and have a trainer had a free one. And it was part of our process. So anyway, so it started there writing plans nice setup for them. It's smart too. And I actually learned a lot from that. Um, but so it started there. Um, I was continuing to run a little bit after college and um, my first training plans I wrote I never wrote anything for myself. I think I've always been an intuitive uh, athlete, meaning like a lot of times I just feel what my body needs and I, I do that. I run under a few guiding principles, but nonetheless, I think I've been doing that for a long time. But my sister wanted to run a marathon and my father wanted to run a half marathon. My dad was a state champ, as, as I think most of the listeners know in cross country back in the day, then kind of gave it up for a bit and then got back to it. And so him and my sister had a big rivalry and it was who's going to beat who because they were getting to be close to the similar uh, ability levels. My dad in his 50s, my sister becoming a better runner. So I coached them both. And my sister um, coached her to like a three, I don't know, 17 in the marathon, which for her ability level was knocking it out okay. of the park. And I wrote plans for her yeah. for, for years. And then a couple of her friends were like, hey, I'd like to and I read race. And so I wrote some plans. Um, this is all for free at this time. Just I'm happy to send you something. And I'd send them 12 weeks at a time, basically. Or if they gave me 16 weeks out, I wrote those. And some of them were having pretty good success. But they were really people who just went out and put their running shoes on and didn't do speed work. They didn't do anything. So like, I think I got a false sense of security because like I was giving them harder stimulus and faster than race pace stimulus was just like they didn't realize how much their fitness could pop so i kind of got you know what i mean like when you just take somebody who just goes out and runs every day like yeah add some intervals in and in three weeks they're gonna run faster than they have in years like duh and i think i i got lucky with that so i had some success thought i was decent and then during that time uh all the way from 2007 onward till today you know, I'd have a client in the gym and at any given time I was running 60 or so clients in the gym and I'd have half of them who were willing to be on workout plans on their own. So a lot of that included running. And then along there, some would be like, you know, I think I want to try to finish a 10 K and I'd be like, let's get you ready. And so I'd be writing plans for clients constantly. And I still do to this day. So 
Um, I still wasn't taking money outside of my personal training clients and then a few friends of the family. And then when it actually shifted for me was, um, now I'm just, now I probably have five or six people I'm just giving plans to in my circle. And this is probably 2007 to 2011. And then in 2011, I decided to take my online or personal training offerings online, trying to reach more people. Um, I had all these people that had watched me on the stupid bachelorette and they'd reach out and be like, I wish I was in Minneapolis and I could train with you. And I'd be like, well, sorry, you're not. And then I'd move on. I was like, wait a minute, I can make this work. And so I started online personal training and took on about 20 or 30 people, general fitness. Some wanted to run, some wanted to lose weight, some wanted to get strong. And so I was writing online plans since 2011, getting paid. Um, but it was general fitness. I didn't start getting paid as a run coach specifically where that switched over. Um, you know, I would have maybe five of my online clients wanted to run and they wanted to be a better runner. So I was coaching technically, but um, not in bulk. And then that changed probably 2018 is when I started actually believing in advertising. Like I, I feel like I'm qualified finally to put it out that I'm an actual run coach. I would say it took me until then. So behind you for sure. Um, but I was coaching intermittently practice. along the way. Oh yeah. A lot of, a lot of that. So that was how many years? So 2011 to 2018, I was coaching a handful of people for running constantly training myself. And then in 18 decided to, um, make the jump. So, so that's been what, five years now. 18, yeah. About five years, I would say of that. So five years of just fully considering your main occupation run coaching. <clears throat> and for me, it'd be 2016 when my income shifted to made the majority being run coaching. So okay, six, seven years only doing that. Well, I would spend previous to 2019, 18, I would spend about 40, 35 hours a week in the gym with clients and maybe 40 and then I would only spend one half of a day writing plans each week for people, another six hours or so. Um, now I am in the gym this week. I counted, let me see, three, six, nine. I'm in the gym 12 hours. That's it. I'm a third of what I used to do. And I'm spending the other 30 hours on run planning, coaching, communication, things like that. So I've shifted the running public podcast hosting. So it's shifted completely. So I kind of want to just list off the things that I got wrong and the things that I believe to be true in work, specifically for OCR, but in running in general. If we yeah. just want to go back and forth like that for a little Let's bit. Let's do it. The first thing I realize is that running fast interval work does not translate to race day performance for the general population. They can get faster, like you said, over three to four weeks, you'll see an improvement. But in terms of getting to your real goal or long-term development, the main mover of the plan cannot be short, fast interval work for most people. Agreed. This paired with that is that the more hill work the general person does, the better their running gets. And I, and it does... And doesn't matter what kind of hill work that is. It can be short, fast hill sprints. It can be interval work. It can be grindy stuff. It can be long, slow stuff. But I think the more talented and the higher the ceiling the person is, the more they benefit from 
interval sessions, flat sessions, track work. I think it's the thing that generally gets them to their top is more time spent at race pace or faster. And that hills are nice, but it's not not the game changer for them. Their talent brings them up above the level that most of us even can get to. Mm -hmm. But I think the inverse is true, that the more you are an average person or below average talent, the more important it is to do hill work and the more you get out of hill work and the less you get out of speed work and interval work. And I think it's I think that for two reasons. And I'm open to debate on this, but again, I'm saying I think and I believe, not I know to be true. But again, 10, 12, 15 years of doing this, these are the trends that I've noticed with general athletes. And it's that general athletes do not have a stride made for running fast for long durations. And so their interval stride they use is not the same stride they use on race day. They cannot keep it. Their body is not designed to do it. It's just not their skill set. And so they're practicing a stride they're never going to use. And the general interval sets that they can get through at race pace have to be shorter. And so it doesn't carry over as well to race day. Where a pro runner, someone who's incredibly gifted and genetically designed to run well, has a sustainable, light, quick, efficient stride naturally. And so speed work is race day work at the same time. Whereas running up a hill actually changes their stride for the worse, and it's less specific to them. And their engine's already big and built up, so they don't need that work as much. But the regular person with the average everyday stride gets a lot of engine work off running uphill, and it actually makes their stride better, and they just don't get as much bang for their buck long-term off doing short, spicy speed work. That is one of my big things I've taken away over the last decade or two. Yeah, I might parallel that and maybe because I started under you, but it was, I mean, like short, fast interval workout is like that flame that burns hot and fast and like a new relationship and you're infatuated with each other. And it's like everything is amazing until all of a sudden it isn't like that flame burned hot and it was glorious while it lasted. And then, bam, it went out and we're like, what are we doing here? Like it just doesn't progress past that, we will call it. That is throwing yeah. a bunch of speed work at a novice runner. And and of course it's it's implemented in the programs we write. There's speed work in there for novice runners, don't get me wrong. But the foundation of why we believe you're going to improve is not going to be that. And a long, slow burn relationship in which ends up, you know, dating for years and then marriage is is the the principle, like not the flash. It's like the stuff that isn't that fancy. like doing laundry together when you, you know, it's like, eh. but it moves the needle forward mm-hmm. as far as your bond goes. And ultimately you end up in the, the right place at the end of it all. And so like, it's like that would be the big difference. Like it's, it's hot, it's fast, it's flashy. It's wonderfully attractive and sparkly. And it only lasts so long before you stop progressing. So I could not agree more. And I used to base the improvements. It'd be a quick, it'd be a, you're going to run 400 meter repeats week one, 800s week two, a mile repeats week three. You're going to do a ladder of all four in week four. And then we're going to repeat the cycle. It was like things like that, which you could get behind doing that. But where was the threshold work? There was none. It was all VO2 max work and underneath. And anyway, so I'm just backing up what you said. And then the second thing about, hill running in philosophy and this is largely credit to spartan racing and being forced to run up mountains and then so i had to start learning the craft i couldn't agree more one um it makes you very efficient at that grinding feeling 
your legs are still forced to contract once you're aerobically pushed, like in a different way than flat running requires. And it just keeps you efficient on flat ground. It just does. Not only that, I feel like uphill running has exponentially expands people's ability to increase their overall volume because it doesn't pound your legs as much. You can do a hard uphill workout and go for an hour and a half. And two days later, you can go run quality flat work and still be effective or go hit a long run because there's not as much damage done structurally. Yes, your muscles are tired, but it's opened up athletes and my ability to run more volume simply like time on feet. And once you realize that's a powerful tool as an athlete, like you realize like, oh my God, like even if it's just for that alone, forget the efficiency piece, forget the, it's like, duh, why wouldn't you do that? And so I, I agree with you. I I wish I could debate you on it, but I can't. So it's, it's just tried and true throughout our coaching that we see this. If you look at a, a high level, not even elite, just a high end marathon or running, and they look like they're running fast. They're striking midfoot. Some are even toe striking. Their arms are pumping fast. And we look at them and say, it looks like they're sprinting. Well, that's why they can get so much out of interval work because they're using the same stride. It translates over. And so if they do a ton of hill work and grindy stuff like that, they're actually using a degraded stride from what they're going to use on race day. And they don't need the reduction of pounding because they take less pounding by being lighter, faster, and more efficient when they run. When you look at the average marathoner and you look at them racing a marathon and they're plotting, it looks slow because it has to be to make it 26 miles. So you put them out there and you do 5K or 10K speed pace speed work and you're using a stride that has no basis in the stride you're going to use on race day. But you look more similar to your race stride running uphill for a marathoner who's average than you do running a 5K. Whereas an elite marathoner, their 5K stride and their marathon stride would look pretty identical. And that's the big piece we miss is even if structurally or physiologically or chemically in our bodies or systemically, it makes sense to do some of that work. It can't be the basis because stride wise, you can't carry that over and you have no endurance and staying power in the actual mechanics you're going to use. Mm -hmm. Sure isn't flashy, but damn it, it's effective, isn't it? Yeah. And that's all we did in high school. It's all I did in college. Three sets of intervals, three interval sessions per week, all throughout college, Mm -hmm. over and over. When we wanted a break from that, we would do a fartlek or a hill workout in the off season. Spicy fartleks. Mm -hmm. Stuff we'd do fartleks. The coach would have we'd have three paces for a lot of our fartleks. We'd do mile pace, five k pace. What was it? Mile, five k, ten k for like one minute, two minute, three minute with equal distance rest. That's not your typical fartlek. You don't hit mile in, in 3K or 5K pace during a fartlek. So we came from a different world and it was so deeply ingrained that it took a long time to get out of my mind that I don't need this. But it hit me in the middle of the first uh, flat Spartan beast I ran down in Texas, I want to say. It was either Texas or California where I felt so fit And my stride just crumbled after six miles. None of my endurance work, none of my speed work was accessible at that point because I was suddenly heel striking when I ran the first six miles toe striking. And I didn't have any stamina on my stride. I couldn't make it that far with that stride. That is the biggest thing, man. Like learning how to coach the body systemically, like your intervals become null and void because you're unable to sustain a high rate of work for a long time. Your threshold sucks. 
And so you can somehow get really good at running short, fast intervals because the rest is plugged in there and everything has a chance to charge up. And then when it comes to extending it, you can't even access what you've been practicing. And I felt that yeah. myself running these five Ks, you know, in the early 2010s, like being like, wow, like my interval workouts, I'm running 66 is 67 for 400 meters. And then I go out for repeats and then I go out and run 16, 15 in the 5k again. I'm like, what gives like that pace is so much slower than I'm practicing. And it would just, and now it's like, no, I need to go spend time running 5:30 pace for a long time. You, you big dummy. It's bizarre. Well, one thing I want to get to, cause I want to try to keep this episode to an hour, um, or close is part of Troy's question where he asked, um, like the challenges of coaching, people who want to do ultras and also want to run a fast 5k and some are doing hybrid racing, but then have a Spartan beast later. And I think that is the most challenging part of our job. I, I had an athlete send me a race schedule with like 29 races on it the other day. And I'm like, Oh, you're going to make me earn my paycheck now, aren't you? Like that is the trickiest thing that has had that I feel like has taken growth over the last few years is guiding people appropriately when it's necessary to temper their enthusiasm. But if somebody enjoys this enough to race and hire me as a coach, like I'm going to do my best to make it happen. And that has been challenging. So if you had to like put in sort of a nutshell, like your experience with like coaching such a vast array of people, like what, what would you say you've learned? Well, I was very uncomfortable coaching people for long distance early on. In fact, I would generally tell them if you are dead set on me doing it, I'll do it. But this you probably are better served elsewhere. And that still could be true to some extent, but uh, ultras became, they went from niche to mainstream over the past decade. It used to be if you were an ultra runner, that was something. That was your thing. That's That was your community. That was your world. And you'd hear them all the time. Oh, I'm just an ultra guy. I'm just doing this because my buddies are here. And now it's like every runner we know jumps into an ultra from time to time to work on stay power because their trail looks awesome or the, the venue is sweet or it was available. Ultras are just acceptable. Now it used to be seen as you're going to destroy your legs or it's bad for your career. It's going to kill your foot speed. And maybe it's because of the Walmsley's and people like that who can go out and run crazy fast hundreds and still run uh, Olympic trials, marathons, and, mm -hmm. you know, Sage Canada and before them, Max King, the people that really broke down the barriers for that, so that, that was probably as useful as anything I did was ultra itself just kind of joined the regular world. True. But finding out that running an ultra and running a marathon and running a 10K are really not any different. They all require race-specific stride work. They all require bulletproofing of your stride. They all require the endurance necessary for their specific task. Do you have to run longer long runs for ultras? Usually, yeah, but not everyone has to. Can you get by on low volume and some really big efforts? Yeah. Can you get by on just overall high volume and frequency and no long runs? Yeah. It used to strike me as this like magic lamp. You had to rub it and an ultra came out. And if you didn't do it correctly, your ultra wouldn't come out correctly. Now it's like, no, it's like training for any other event. Follow the principles of training and you'll be just fine. What about mixing it in with two Decafits, a high rocks? And chasing yeah. the U.S. National Series because that's what fifty percent of my athletes are doing. I'm like, man, and I and it's it's I find comfort in programming for this now because I, I stand by my beliefs. I'll get to them in a second. But like, what about that scenario for you? Like, what then? Well, I think 
everything I said there leads to this, which is that there's comfort in knowing that there are multiple ways to get there. And so you get to lean into the one that incorporates the other races. Right. And I talked about it on here. A few athletes I've had that train for ultras and high rocks at the same time or ultras in stadium or ultra on a 5k. You have to approach the shorter distance as the strength component. So you can be a speed-based miler or you can be a strength-based miler. Well, you're going to be a, a strength-based miler if you're training for an ultra. That's just what it is. And what do you mean? People think the gym and, and weights when you say a strength-based miler. That's not what you mean. Yes, yes. I mean engine and stamina and staying power. You can run a great mile off doing 200-meter and 400-meter intervals, or you can do a great mile off of threshold work and 500 and 800 meter intervals with some short spicy stuff as maintenance right so you you're just going to be the strength-based approach and i've i have come to believe in the power of finishers and standalone um sports specific skill workouts so finishing a threshold run with some if it's going to be a deca box jump overs and and lunge step backs and 100 meter runs in between I think that doing these type of things in a short, little compact manner, when combined with the massive engine and endurance you're going to build training for an ultra, that that really does carry over. And so I save a lot of the sports-specific things for skill work and in the weight room, and then as really the minimum effective dose throughout the week in prioritizing global engine building throughout the process. And I think it's really, really effective. I do. I used to think you could probably get 80 or 90% of the way there going at both of them. Now I think you can be well over 90% in both ends of the spectrum at the exact same time. Maybe even more than 90%. That'd be selling it short. 95 to 97% effective. Yeah, because I believe it is harder to train for a marathon or a 50K than any of the other distances in there down to probably just under 5K or 200 mile. I think that middle distance there, that marathon 50K, whatever the longest distance is that you can race hard the entire time is the hardest distance to train for. Mm -hmm. But a true ultra where you're not redlined the entire time, you have a lot of flexibility with what you do. It'd be hard to be a great marathoner and decafit runner. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. Or a great 50K runner and 5K runner, but really long and short, I think it actually pairs well. Yep. Especially a nice short spicy miserable competition within three to six weeks of a longer grindy competition man that formula just works well yeah i i used to just be like oh my god like you get overwhelmed as a coach with like trying to fit in all the right stimulus you're like oh my god they need all they need grip work they need functional fitness work they need long runs of three hours maybe back-to-back long runs they also need to get ready for climbing and descending because they're ultras on a mountain but they're racing hybrid on flat concrete it's like you gotta squeeze all these things in and you feel like you sell them all short right like you're like well we can't i can't give you enough to be good at all of this like great like we're just gonna have to do the working man's plan and get through it and that's how i looked at it for a little while i was like well we're gonna do our best but just know that we can't touch on everything perfectly and then as time has gone on i've realized that's not true there's no desperation to get all of the perfect skill work in. You, the, the comfort in the fact that everything, like the fact that all these races are longer than four minutes even. Four minutes is like the cutoff in my mind. Like four or five minutes, like we're working the same energy systems and that's what it comes down to. And everybody's racing typically longer than 15 in any of these, even a deck a mile or a deck a strong. Um, 
it's like 15 minutes or more becomes like lumped into the same damn energy system if you're going three hours or 15 minutes. And when you realize that, you realize, yes, skill work is necessary, but you can attain that very close to the race. You can start your OCR or hybrid work three weeks out if you've worked the right metabolic systems previously and still show up and race well. And once I realized like you didn't need to always be doing everything, there's like phases to training and people could perform. Well. I was like, my philosophy is like, I stopped cramming everything in and trying to make it all work all the time and being like, no, we're going to, we're going to work you metabolically the way we need to. And then when it's time, when we're leading into the, some of these events, we'll get you skill work specific. And it doesn't take as long as people think if you're laying it on the right foundation. So I've really changed in that regard. And that's how I approach like, all of it, like trying to mash everything together. And then as we've talked about, and you and I've talked about when in doubt, the longer event takes priority with your decision-making. So just running with that philosophy and then racing down to shorter ones, I would say would be the other one. Well, in, in ultra training has changed a lot. It used to be mandatory. You're doing back-to-back -back long runs. A lot of people do it every weekend and more and more of the new age speed-based ultra runners. They're just not doing that very often. Mm -mm. They're letting cumulative volume of training boost them up. Uh, but one of the benefits of doing the back-to-back -back is that you are doing something of importance with pre-fatigue in your in your legs, in your muscles, in your system. And that works well into this approach because you can do, let's say, a DECA or a high or a high rocks. You can do a full sim Saturday morning and then head out into a 90-minute run. Yes. You know, that's almost like a back-to-back -back long run. And it doesn't compromise your shorter, intense work because you do it first. And then every step of the run you take after that is like being three hours into the run in terms of your actual cellular fatigue you have on your legs after doing all those sled pushes and pulls. So you can get, it doesn't even have to be super creative. I need a three hour long run. Okay. I'm going to do an hour of high rocks work and I'm going to hit a two hour run. That is a three hour effort. It's basically a brick workout, but it's sports specific. And when you get to race day in that ultra and you get to run for the first hour casually, rather than grind against a sled or weighted lunges, mm -hmm. You're not going to be as depleted. So sometimes it benefits the ultra runner even more to get outside the box. I agree with that as well. In fact, I think like training OCR or hybrid space can actually like trying to get that in the mix can benefit your ultra running or other races for that exact thing you just mentioned, like the ability to be able to throw that into your programming and call it purposeful and then pull stimulus before a race, like just a pure run race can be a game changer. Yeah. So, okay. So we need to work towards wrap, wrapping this up. Um, mostly cause I got to go to back to the gym, but where we, what do we want to let, like where are we heading as coaches or the running public of what our, what our plan is? I, do we have, do we want to just share that like yeah. a minute or two minutes, a quick one? Well, I've talked about it a little bit on here that I've been starting to dabble more in, in, I guess what I, if I had th my, high school coaching and what I was doing with myself was probably like Bracken coaching 1.0 and then leaderboard started 2.0 and then it'd be, I guess now would be 2.5 probably where I don't think I'm night and day different from what I was doing at leaderboard, but I just have a better grasp on it. So it's like half of an update, but what I'm working on right now, I would consider Bracken's coaching 3.0 at risk of talking about myself using my own name, which is <laughs> always a little bit cringy. But, I'm into it. Uh, some, some of the stuff that that is happening in the current endurance world, 
I believe plays very well into OCR, specifically into hybrid racing. Uh, some of the, I don't know if cutting edge is the term, but the in vogue training that's happening right now is expanding our understanding of how we can maximize our work, especially working with everyday athletes who can't handle you know, the type of training pros do. Some of these mixed modality styles of training, I think, haven't really even been tapped with how they can impact your run performance by doing other things other than pure stereotypical running workouts. And I think that's the next stage for all of us in this space is, is that it is being figured out right now. People are tinkering right now. People are experimenting with their training plans right now. And we get to be a part of that. So taking what we know to be true, not throwing it out, but making sure that we keep doing that, what Taylor forced me to do at Leaderboard, which is defend it. Tell me why this works. If you can't tell me why, and if you can't give me good examples or at least a logical explanation, this is one of the pieces that's a candidate for the trash pile. And we're going to add in to fill its space one of these new pieces that makes logical sense and we can say why, but we haven't necessarily tested it in our sport and it takes the place right there. And now we get to work on testing that without compromising any of the planks that's surrounded with such tried and true good work. For me, that's what I'm most excited about the next two, three, five years is taking that next step of implementing really new approaches in the space. And then hopefully in 10 years, it's the old stuff already. It's the mm -hmm. stuff that people say, yeah, that's fine. That's good. And we're going to make it better now. I think it's a safe bet to just assume that there's experimentation going on most always, right? Yeah. Uh -huh. you're, you're a tinkerer too, which I like. I've become more so. Recently. Yeah, I enjoy that. I like being my own guinea pig too more than I used. Like you said, be like, I want to guarantee, like I'm gonna get. I know what this workout's gonna do. Now I'm like, I kind of, I just want to. I'm one. I want. I'm curious. I'm wondering what this workout's going to do, and it's fun. It's been fun. I would say speaking on the running public behalf, and then like, I mean, our personal behalf. Like obviously, um, we're gonna expand our offerings in 2023. We're looking to double down on helping more people, right? We have things that I think we're going to be unveiling soon here. We were supposed to just after the turn of the year. And I think we, we were a little slow on that with the holidays and then getting sick. But, um, and then you're still one-on-one -on -one coaching, customized individual separately from me and I'm separate from you. We do our own one-on-one -on -one coaching and then we're still collaborating with the running public offerings, which, um, we're expanding here. I mean, it should be here shortly. We'll see how quickly we get stuff out, but, um, more options. I guess it's by Monday. No, okay, it's well, ready by Monday. That's just an overview. Like we're not we're not going anywhere. That's the plan. And eventually, personally, I'm you know I've slowly drifted away from the gym and personal training, which is how I made my living purely for years. And maybe eventually spreading my wings and and going all in on on this on the running public and coaching. Yeah. don't know how soon that would be, but that is in the back of my head. So that's looking ahead a little bit. I don't know if you have any other thoughts there for you, but if my history has shown me anything, it's that whenever I think I've got it figured out, it means that I've stagnated and I'm ready for growth or I'm about to get smacked down with some humility. <laughs> whenever I think, I think I'm doing something new and good here, or I think I'm doing it about as well as I can do it. You just meet that next level of person who just makes you feel like an ant. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying I'm in that place right now because I think that only happens once or twice and you don't get to that place anymore. <laughs> you yeah. realize like I was arrogant in 2012 and I was arrogant in 2015 and I doubt I'll be an arrogant coach ever again. I really hope I don't, but if I do, it's going to smack me down. So I, I really 
don't know that this process ever stops. So I guess I'm excited for our yearly revisitation of this topic to to add to it with new things that we've now say, all right, I can firmly say now that this piece no longer needs to be present or this new piece is real exciting to look at. Like everything I'm doing right now is working off of uh, doubling workouts. Mm-hmm. A lot of figuring out how to double and when it should be split on AM and PM and when it can be done back to back as part one and part two or as a finisher versus a buy-in. That's a big thing I'm spending most of my time researching and working on right now. I can't wait for next year to look back and say, here's what we confirmed, here's what we denied, here's what we still don't know. Yeah, and I think the things I'm playing around with right now would be very, very much an absence of speed work and really double down on Mm. threshold work. And even when I do allow myself speed work, the rest is so short or purposeful that it turns into a threshold in and out session. And then the other thing is just, I'm working skill work, going from aerobic to strength work constantly, whether I've thrown in some treadmill workouts now, I've been doing my assault bike. And when I get back into the OCR scene, how does that hold me over? How does that translate versus inside out, hate your life, OCR compromised work, which is a quality session. I'm doing aerobic stuff. So those two experiments I'm currently working on. So those are my those are my little projects, and I know I you'll like come it. up with another one shortly. You always you always do. Yeah, I'm sure there will be, but this one, I mean, those, that one thing alone, the doubling processes, that's mm. going to take me all year and probably the next year. I can't wait to see what happens. All right, we need we need to go now, Bracken, because mm-hmm. if I don't go in one minute, there's no chance I can eat even a little lunch before going back to the gym, and you don't want that. And abrupt stop. <laughs> bam, 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 bam. <laughs>